Welcome to the Learning Shared Podcast. So good morning to everyone that is watching this live and I guess good morning, good afternoon, good evening, whatever time of day it is with you if you're watching or listening to the recorded version. My name is Alan Wood. I am one of the directors and co-founders at Evidence for Learning and I also produce the Learning Shared podcast during evenings and weekends and usually early hours of the morning usually. Thank you very much for joining us. I'd like to welcome you to this webinar, which we've entitled Reflections on Recovery, Reigniting Children's Learning. We're going to be live tweeting highlights from the event on Twitter uh, via the handle at underscore learning shared. And you're very welcome to join us in that conversation. Uh, We're using the hashtag recovery curriculum and hashtag learning shared. And my thanks to Alistair Crawford from St. Martin's School and Teaching Alliance in Derby for his help with that part of proceedings. Thanks, Alistair. So our thoughts then, when we decided to host this event, we had two goals in mind. Firstly, we wanted to pull together some of the incredible amounts of development and work that has gone into planning and enacting the recovery and transition back to effective learning for our children and young people. But we also thought this would actually be a really good opportunity to celebrate what has been a a mammoth collaborative effort uh, that has underpinned the evolution of this recovery and reconnection process, not just in our country, but but obviously around the world too, and in such a short space of time. Um, It's quite remarkable to think that it's not even three months since we first published Barry and Matthew Carpenter's original think piece on the recovery curriculum. That was first published on the 25th of April. And when Barry sent me the first draft, it it immediately resonated with me. And we we agreed at that point that we had to get this out there as quickly as possible. And we we had to share it with as many colleagues as we could. And so we got busy. (laughs) And and that's, that's really what part of this webinar is about today. It's to bring together some of these threads of work that people have been doing all around the country and further afield, and some of those ideas that have been generated. Of course, the recovery curriculum isn't a finished product. It's not a set of resources. Uh, It's a construct. It's a set of ideas that can assist schools with their thinking and planning. And at the time we, we published Barry and Matthew's think piece, schools were clearly starting to develop their own ideas and plans for reconnecting and recovery. And so it made sense to us to create and provide a space and community where colleagues could come together and they could collaborate, share ideas, potentially share resources. So we set up a set of web pages at uh, www.recoverycurriculum.org and then started collecting and curating resources and references that that we thought schools might find useful. Uh, We also set up online communities of practice, uh, the idea being really to create a space that was safe, positive, where colleagues, as I say, could come together, 
share, cooperate. And you can see I've put on the screen, we've, we've got groups on Facebook and LinkedIn. If you go onto Facebook and search under groups for recovery curriculum, you're welcome to join us. We currently have just under 7,500 colleagues in that group. Uh, and there's also a SEND group, the EFL SEND community. And we have a, gr a group on LinkedIn as well. The Facebook group seems to be a, a lot more popular. Um, but I'll, I'll come back to some numbers on that shortly. And then to help kickstart a wider conversation about recovery and reconnection and to help us all explore how the recovery curriculum might look in the context of a school's existing curricula and provision, we thought it would be useful to host a series of conversations and presentations. So we reached out to a number of colleagues from a wide range of settings, primary, secondary, special, mainstream, a college, a multi-academy trust. We, we even managed to, to pull in the governor perspective. And as a result, we put together 14 episodes, 15 including this one. We've, we've just put live Alex Tompkins' episode, which is a wonderful episode looking at teacher-led inquiry and SEMH. But the idea with these podcast episodes was to really start a conversation and to collect some initial thoughts and ideas that colleagues could then draw upon and potentially use to enhance and take forward their own ideas and their own practices around recovery and reconnection. And all of these colleagues that you can see on the screen at the moment gave very, very generously of their time, knowledge and insights. And I would like to take this moment to say a gigantic, huge thank you to everybody that has taken part so far. And then for me, the most exciting thing actually has been to see people take the ideas within the recovery curriculum, the notion of the losses and, and crucially the five levers, and then start, as was always the intention, to personalise the response to their own setting and their own populations and communities, then to share those efforts, share those ideas, and in some cases, even the resources too. And the, you know, the level of collaboration and sharing for, for me has been really inspiring and actually quite energising. We've, we've seen a phenomenal array of ideas, posts, and resources shared via the Facebook group. A number of schools have, have even shared curriculum handbooks, lesson activities, and, and all freely. We're going to be taking some of these resources, incidentally, from the Facebook group and, and posting them into the recovery curriculum web pages just so that they're easy to find for colleagues. But back to the celebration point, I thought it might be useful to just share some statistics. I mentioned the Facebook group having just under 7,500 members. I, I checked earlier today and there have been 6,500 posts, comments and reactions just in the last 28 days, which is a phenomenal indication of the sharing, but also the support, I guess, as well, and encouragement. Um, the podcasts have been watched or listened to more than 54,000 times. And the recovery curriculum web pages have had more than 160,000 visitors. So I think collectively those numbers show that there is a real consensus in the importance of the ideas of recovery and reconnection at this time. And reading the comments, especially in the Facebook group, it's clear that we're all learning lots from each other, which I think has also been a, a, a fantastic opportunity and a silver lining over the last four months. I think it was Dr. Chris Moore who suggested that this might be the golden age of CPD. 
And on the subject of sharing and collaboration, professional learning, let, let's move let's move straight on to proceedings. Um, we're joined in today's webinar by a wonderful group of colleagues. There's immense talent and experience among them. Uh, I won't introduce everybody now. We'll, we'll introduce them as we meet them for their session. We were going to be joined by Matthew Carpenter, who was co-author, along with Barry, of the original Think Piece. However, he's been struck down with tonsillitis and so sends his apologies. And we send Matthew our best wishes for speedy recovery. And I'd like to thank Sharon Gray for immediately offering to step in and take Matt's role as chair of today's panel. Thank you, Sharon. So for the agenda, we'll have two presentations, one from Barry and one from Tina. And Sarah Miles from Hinton House Publishers will be joining us just before Tina's presentation to officially introduce and launch Tina's latest book, A Toolkit for Wellbeing. The bulk of today, though, is going to be discussion amongst our panel. You should notice on your Zoom control panel that there is a Q&A button. So please feel free to use that to submit any questions to our panel. We may not be able to field every question, obviously, given the time. We'll do our best. Um, but I'm thinking what we will do is I'll post all of the questions on the Facebook group over the coming days. And that way, then we can invite the wider community to give their response and share their thoughts on some of these issues too. <clears throat> so let's move to our first item. As many of you will know, Barry Carpenter is the Professor of Mental Health in Education at Oxford Brookes University. His career in education spans more than 40 years. He's been a classroom teacher, a head teacher at three schools. He's been an inspector of schools, as well as the director of the Centre for Special Education at Westminster College, Oxford. In a DfE-appointed role, Barry led some important and a valuable piece of research on the use of engagement as a pedagogy. And some of you will know that that work became part of the foundation for the Rochford Review of 2016 and was subsequently developed into what has become the department's new guidance on the engagement model. Um, some of you may not know that Barry was actually due to retire at the end of June. <laughs> and uh, I, for one, are very grateful that he put that retirement on hold to provide some extremely valuable leadership and guidance over these last three to four months. Um, I was delighted to attend the Chartered College of Teaching's webinar yesterday with Alison Peacock, where Barry was awarded fellowship. So congratulations for that, Barry. Thoroughly deserved. Can I invite you to give us your presentation, which is today entitled Frail, Fragile and Fragmented Recovery and the Learner? Thank you, Alan, and welcome to everybody this morning. Um, this event was not in the diary, as Alan has indicated, but uh, it's been an incredible roller coaster these last three months and um, been one of the most productive periods in my career, I think. I can't go forward without paying tribute to Alan, who has just worked tirelessly in providing the platform for the recoverycurriculum.org, but also in editing all of the wonderful podcasts. And I too want to again give my thanks to everybody that's contributed so freely of their time for those podcasts. The spirit of goodwill that has pervaded our work during this pandemic has been something I think we should always cherish. And I hope it will inform our interactions when we all return to, to school and the wider education world uh, from September onwards, when hopefully things will begin to start to open up for us. 
My title this morning, I'm just reflecting on what those children, what would be like for those children in September of whatever ability. And we can't have locked down children for some of them for six months without it having had an impact. To be locked down is not a natural state for a child. So I think that they will return to us frail, fragile, and fragmented. They will be frail in their self-concept as a learner. They will be fragile in their learning processes. Some of those neural pathways that they were using so effectively to transmit learning around the brain prior to the pandemic will have gone through periods of fright, of fear, of worry, of anxiety. Almost, I think, part of that brain may have been frozen, will be clunky in transmitting those messages. Uh, and I want to come to some interventions around that later on in this presentation. So fragile in their learning processes and fragmented. They'll bring back to us pieces of learning. You've all been absolutely magnificent in supporting children uh, at home during this time. But you know it's not the curriculum you would have delivered if they were in your classroom. Parents have stepped up and done just a wonderful job in supporting their children's learning. But the profile will be very uneven when our children return to school. They will bring back fragments of learning. You'll find yourself trying to sort out what it is the child knows and what, what new experiences you need to give them to build on that learning that they present. So it's that, that process of recovery and how we're going to embed it. And it's all about restoring our children to their rightful place as learner. Education should be a dignifying process. I was greatly relieved to hear Amanda Spielman, uh, Her Majesty's Chief Inspector of Schools, speak last week. And Amanda spoke of rebuilding. Rebuilding, recovery, it's all in the same domain. She wants us to rebuild our school communities, to rebuild that learning process in children. And she said schools should make decisions based on the needs of each individual child. Some children will have lost a lot of time. Yes, six months. And for some of our children with special educational needs, that is an incredible amount of time where they've not had the subtleties of your uh, wonderful reinforcement teaching. The, 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 you as their teacher who knows the very nuances, the very crevices of their learning behavior and profile will not have been there shining the light into those crevices, teasing out the learning that you do so very, very well. We need to look at those words and also remind ourselves, Amanda Spielman has said, there will be no inspections in the autumn term. Ofsted will be around. They will be supporting schools. They may want to see your recovery plans as such. But people are therefore saying, well, why do we need them? Our HMI need to be monitoring the national trends that are happening to capture what, what has been the experience of our children. That's their job. They need to identify that, and we need that evidence. So they do have a purpose in the coming term, a very helpful purpose, I think. What's been happening to children? Well, this study out of the States is telling us that, um, and this is from a psychologist who examined the referrals to her clinic, that the new referrals she was getting were children showing tantrums, mood swings, sleep deprivation and bedwetting. Sleep deprivation seems to have been a major feature in children and adults. But the interesting one I found was clingier. There are children who will not allow a parent out of their sight, will not be left in a room on their own. I wonder if that will transfer to you as their teacher, that they won't want you out of their sight, that they will be more withdrawn. Many children are angry 
that their world has been turned upside down. There is an adult logic to all of this, but not a child's logic. They do not understand why you abandoned them, as they might perceive it, on that day in March. They do not understand why they can't go to the school. I know of parents who are having to drive past schools on a weekly basis to reassure their sons and daughters with autism that the school is still there. So know that these emotions and these responses may present when the children return. We know, interesting from the Institute of Fiscal Studies, that mental health has worsened in our young people, um, 8.1%, particularly in, in young women. Um, and last week I did a, a lecture for the DFE where the NHS spoke, um, and in fact they gave these figures. And you'll see there, look at these words from the NHS, loss and bereavement, loss of routine, uh, loss of protective factors, all words that Matthew and I use when writing the recovery curriculum. So to have that synergy from our colleagues in health, the evidence is their colleagues. People have been wanting a justification to go about recovery. Our NHS service is saying that is a legitimate process because children will come with these needs in September and we need to prepare. They went on to say in that lecture, and you can find this, uh, the DfE will release this online this week and I will post it on my website. Um, they talk about um, those everyday relationships. My goodness, one of the lectures I gave for DfE last week was about from relationships to resilience. Um, and we need to have those safe spaces, as Matthew wrote in the recovery curriculum document, those safe spaces for our children, externally and internally. And they talk about nurturing and compassion. Well, it's music to our ears, isn't it? I bet Tina Ray is applauding this one. Um, it's absolutely crucial. Um, we're all on the same page, colleagues. Everybody wants our children to be the best that they can be, but acknowledging there will need to be this phase of, of reconnection, of recovery, and of resilience building. And what about our children in care? Bernardo's are reporting a 44% increase in children taking into care. Many will have witnessed domestic abuse. Some of those will be children with special educational needs too. At the same time, concurrently, the number of people coming forward to act as foster carers has decreased significantly. And what about parents? I did an international webinar last week, and this speaker from Canada was talking about parental act, uh, anxiety. Uh, and have you not had parents say to you recently, yep, the children are doing the work you've been setting online and sending home, but in fact, the joy of learning has gone. Will they have lost the ability to learn when they return to school? You will need to find ways of re-engaging them, journeying with them, to that point where you can celebrate them once more as an efficient and effective learner who is authentically engaged. And that journey of engagement is about taking that disengaged child, re-engaging them. And at first it will be fleeting engagement. Then it'll move towards more sustained engagement until you eventually get to the level of authentic engagement. And that's the process in the, the book that I wrote with um, Joe Edgerton and, and Beth Kogel and other colleagues, Jodie Fotheringham, etc. Um, that um, we articulated. And it's, again, a process I would commend to you. And it won't be a waste of time, A, because it'll benefit the child, but B, it'll help you. It'll be like in-class CPD, because this sort of thinking and process 
will prepare you for the use of the engagement model when in September 2021 it becomes statutory summative assessment for our children with the HCPs in our schools. And remember that engagement is an essential lens in the toolkit of approaches for recovery curriculum. And that was written just this last weekend on the wonderful sensory uh, festival the Hurstwoods wrote, the essential lens. It's how you look at the child, not always what you do, but will you have the eyes to see? And the Cabot School, when they did their magnificent podcast, talked a lot about looking through the eyes of a, of a child. And the Cabot Federation has adopted that across the many schools in that federation in a very child-centered, child-focused way. Katie Fielding, in her podcast, has given us this wonderful model, I think, about planning, where, yeah, what's happened to our children in lockdown? then what's the transition going to be? Now, some of you have had children coming back, year six and, and reception year one, uh, years 10 and years 12, um, year 30, yeah, year 12. Um, what's the transition processes? What's the transition going to be for your children in September? They're just coming in one bang, or is it going to be a transition? And then what's the recovery period? And that'll vary from child to child. But I love her final one, and beyond. We have to believe that and beyond will happen. I should be very glad on the day I don't have to talk about recovery curriculum anymore. Because colleagues, the curriculum is the servant of the child, not its master. Please can we adopt that next term? I'm still worried that people are scurrying to worry about standards and statutory tests next year. Let's meet that child in the moment and deal with that child in the moment. Address their needs then. You march past those needs. And that child may carry scars for the rest of their lives. That trauma will, as Tina will articulate, I know when she speaks to you, that trauma will damage their potential as learners and damage their preparation for adulthood, which we are legally charged to deliver. Let's have a curriculum that meets that child at its point of learning need, embraces that child, and once more celebrates them as the active learner that they can be. And that's what the recovery curriculum is about. It's about helping our children be the best that they can be. No child should be scarred, colleagues, by this experience. I worry that children may be robbed of hope. Hope is the gift of childhood. And we need to ensure it's in place for each and every one of our children. We need to reignite that flame of learning in our children because it may have been dampened or indeed extinguished. We need to build relationships, and this is based on some work that I'm about to publish with two teachers, where we've looked, uh, again using some of Tina Ray's work from the uh, sensory toolbox, and what we found there was that the key finding was, was imitation. Imitation, as Piaget said, is the foundation of all learning. Use it. It's so easy to use. It's no cost, low cost. You move your hands in one direction and get the children to mirror it, get the children to copy it. It's so key to stimulating new neural pathways in the brain. And in turn, I believe those will kickstart the other neural pathways that may be somewhat sluggish. I want to give a shout out here for the potential of evidence for learning. It was the first time I'd used evidence for learning in a research process, in, an, in a school-based inquiry process. And its capacity to capture children's uh, participation, what would have taken me a week of analysis normally, took me a morning. I couldn't believe it. I'd got the week blocked out. I had some free days. It was just wonderful. So please do, again, look at your EFL work as an inquiry tool, 
not just uh, an evidence gathering tool. Uh, and Alex's podcast that's just gone out will underscore that. This is just a bit I've pinched from New Zealand, um, where they're talking about dance work. And if you look at the penguins there, penguins often mirror each other's actions. And yet you can do that socially distanced. You can have children in the hall mirroring each other's actions. It's, it's not difficult. It's in your repertoire already. Just pull it out and know why you're using to stimulate new neural pathway growth. It's so important, that process of re-engaging children as learners. And I want to uh, announce today that there will be two children's books coming out in the next few weeks. I've been commissioned by Sheila the Baroness Hollins to write these two books, which I'm very grateful that uh, two dear colleagues at Whitfield Aspen School, Ali Erskine and Jenny Hawkes, have kind of come alongside me. And we've commissioned the artist Charlotte Furman, who is a beautiful illustrator, as you can see from those pictures. Charlotte's father, Peter, was the guy that did Bagpuss, the Clangers, so from a very illustrious illustration family. Um, these will be wordless books, and um, I know Ali Erskine will be on your panel in a while, may mention that she's been trialling them in her school in Dover this week, uh, and I've been trialling them in our local school and with the help of Polly McMeekin, who you'll meet later. Uh, Polly came as a scribe to observe the children in years one and six that I taught on Monday afternoon. Uh, and they just loved the pictures. So it's Lenny and Lucy in lockdown, and Lenny and Lucy return to school. I have been able to fundraise £12,000, and I've covered the production costs of these. They will be free online to every child in our country. Because wordless books are key to discovering emotion. We don't need words in there. We don't want the frontal cortex decoding print phonetically or graphically. This isn't the time for literacy. This is the time for emotional release and emotional expression. Again, I know Tina will echo this in what she says in the magnificent new book that you're going to hear about today. Um, and the use of these books, we hope, will enable our pupils to verbalize those feelings that they've had. And they may not be big stuff. Let's let them say it. Let them embed it. Let them move it on and be who they need to be. And I've been thrilled by parents who've been using some of the books beyond words. And um, we've had some excellent teachers from Chadsgrove, um, Amy Hockey and uh, Lee Blakeman, and they've recorded a podcast showing how the Books Beyond Words approach has been enabling the process of recovery. Um, and this parent talking about using the books to de-stress her child uh, and bring her back to learning. A very flexible resource I'd commend to you. The lecture I gave last week to DFE was to launch the uh, Relationship, Sex and Health Education curriculum to the SEND community with 6,000 people online. And the link is now available. It will be embedded now and we'll let you have this in, in what we, we release. And so if you want to look at that specifically, but what I was really thrilled about in having the opportunity to do this and work with the DFE on that launch was to look at the RSHE materials. And I think... They offer us a sustainable embedded route to recovery. So after your intense interventions next term and the activities you might be taking from Tina's new book, etc., we want to know that something long-term will give us capacity to revisit, uh, restore, uh, and just embed those feelings for our children. And I do think that the RSHE materials DFE have produced will do just that and build that emotional resil resilience and move the child forward. Because now is the time to ensure that we restore the mental wealth of our children. Mental health often means mental ill health. Let's talk about mental wealth. Colleagues, 
You have treasure in your hands. Treasure in your hands as teachers that can transform children's lives. You've always been doing that, but my goodness, our children need that more than ever so that they can once more have aspirations for their future. They can know that their vision for who they want to become can one day be a reality. And these are just some of the goals of of mental wealth, Um, but particularly that one about having a sense of identity and a sense of self-worth. What would your goals for the mental wealth of your children be? And I'm just going to go back to happiness box because I had a colleague write to me the other day who'd been stuck in Dubai, actually, uh, in transit for months and had come back to find her granddaughter, weight loss, a weak child, gray eyes, and she, she wept at seeing her grandchild. And the next day she went back with her shoebox and with her grandchild made the happiness box. And she said within a week, it has transformed that child. She's back to being a giggly, playful child. And Bev Kogel's work has just been outstanding on this. And many of you um, will already know that podcast, but I'd highly commend it to you. And Bev and I have written a rationale. It's not just about being creative with a shoebox, which is how I think I'm going to be remembered by our profession, but it's actually knowing that there is a sound rationale behind all of this rooted in research. And I'd love the creativity of Bettlesford School. They've produced happiness bags for their children because their children couldn't do online learning because their abilities didn't permit it. And so they've been sending happiness bags of activities home for their children. I just love teacher creativity. It's just endlessly makes me happy. Colleagues, I want to end with these thoughts. You need to look after yourselves. It's been an incredibly anxious time for all of you, whether you've been in lockdown at home, whether you've been that head teacher on their hands and knees, measuring two metres and putting down hatch tape, blocking off tables. Um, it's been frightening. We've all been hypervigilant, child and adult. That is not a good resting state for the brain. Life has been and is still very different. There's fear and uncertainty still around. But most of us will recover naturally from the shock. And we won't necessarily need to see a psychologist. Please have hope and have optimism. Remind yourself that this will end. Not tomorrow, but it will end that you've coped with difficulties before. How did you cope then? What was your inner strength? Now, you can cope with the abstraction of inner strength. Some of our children can't. The happiness box could become literally a a, a tangible inner strength for our, our children. But do remember the wonderful human being that you are and the power of your humanity. Stedman Tutu says, my humanity is bound up in yours, for we can only be human together. Thank you. Thank you very much, Barry, for that inspiring presentation. Once again, you've given us much to think about as we look forward to September. So we're now going to hear from our special guest, Dr. Tina Ray. Tina has over 35 years experience working with children, adults and families in clinical and educational contexts, both within local authorities and specialist services. Uh, Tina started her career though in teaching. She was actually 15 years a teacher. She's currently working as a consultant, educational and child psychologist in a range of SEMH and mainstream contexts. And Tina is also a prolific author. 
as many of you will know, um, and has over 100 publications to date. Tina very generously worked with us on episode eight in the Learning Shared Recovery Curriculum podcast series. And thank you for that, Tina. I highly recommend you check that episode out. It's um, full of some fantastic ideas for resourcing a recovery and uh, looks at a number of different nurture approaches. And we're delighted today that Tina and Hinton House Publishers have chosen this event to launch Tina's latest book, A Toolkit for Wellbeing. And so I'd like to invite Sarah Miles, who is Managing Director and Publisher at Hinton House, to say a few words and to introduce Tina to give us her presentation. Sarah. Hello there. Good morning, everyone. Um, I'm very pleased to have been asked to join today's event and to have the opportunity to launch our new book from Tina Ray, A Toolbox of Wellbeing. Since I founded Hinton House in 2007, the mental health and well-being of children and young people has been at the very heart of our publishing ethos. Our focus has been on creating books and resources that will help children, that will help parents and professionals alike to support young people at home, at school and in social care. At times we felt rather like a lone voice in the publishing wilderness, um, but we're so very pleased that young people's mental well-being is moving to the forefront of people's attention and the recovery curriculum is a really important part of this. We were so pleased when Tina chose to publish with Tinton House as our ideas are really closely aligned. And we've published a great number of books together now, including the ASD Girls Wellbeing Toolkit, co-authored with Amy Such, which won the BISA Education Book of the Year earlier this year. We've got many more publications, both books, card sets and other resources in the pipeline. The idea for the book we're launching today came from a joint desire to ensure that parents and teachers had easy access to a range of tools that they could use to support young children and children and young people at this time of great uncertainty. We've been delighted with the response leading up to publication, and for the first time ever, we've actually sold out and had to reprint a book before it's even reached the warehouse. So I'm really pleased to hand over to Tina, who's going to give you a whistle-stop tour through the book. For anyone who'd like to know more, we'll be running some training webinars later in the summer. And I should also add that the book is on special offer through our website, hintonpublishers.com, until the end of this month. So I'll hand over to Tina now. Okay, that's lovely. Welcome, welcome to everybody. I'm absolutely thrilled to be here to do this today. So um, I'm just going to give you basically a whistle-stop tour here of this presentation um, to actually introduce this new resource. And I, I feel really very, very honoured to have been asked to do this today. So as Sarah said, um, this book originally came from just my observation of an interaction between a parent and her two, two young, young boys as they walked along the road in Faversham one morning on my early morning walk when one of the children said to his mum, I really don't want you to go to work, mummy. I'm frightened that you're going to get COVID, that you'll die and you won't come home. I don't want you to leave. I don't want any of us to leave the house because I don't think that we're safe. And it really struck me with almost like a bolt of lightning how 
really deeply that this would be affecting some of our children and young people. So I think really, really important that we had to kind of, I wanted to do something in response to that to say, look, we need to, to help your child to, to self-regulate now, to navigate through this difficulty and actually being bombarded with lots of advice from professionals and big batches of resources was not going to be helpful. We needed something kind of smaller and neater. So I'm hoping that this publication will be the kind of must-have um, resource for parents, carers and teachers in schools as we navigate our way back and transition our way back into the school context. So um, as Sarah said and Alan said, I, I was a teacher. I'm currently working as a consultant psychologist now for Compass Fostering, and I also write prolifically. So it's not just for Hinton House, obviously, also for Nurture UK. And Barry has alluded to some of those publications. What I felt the, the need to do um, during this lockdown period was to, to kind of create what I would think of as a resource for this recovery curriculum. And I'm very aware of the, the extent of the resources out there. There is so much that's being shared by fantastically compassionate practitioners, teachers, that I, I think, you know, we... we, we are at danger of being kind of overwhelmed slightly by it so I'm hoping that this is a kind of very neat way forward for some of us particularly for parents I think that this recovery curriculum in itself and our approach now navigating our way back into school has to be trauma-informed as Barry said it's really really important that these neural pathways are rebuilt for our children, that we understand the need for trauma-sensitive, trauma-informed practice in classrooms at this juncture, because in, in, in essence, nurturing and well-being has got to come first. Children cannot engage cognitively if they are hypervigilant. We know this from all the neuroscience and the research to date, so it's absolutely essential. Rather than focus on education, 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 we need to focus on relationships, 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 and that has to be within the context of trauma-informed nurturing environments for our children. Um, the wonderful Dr Chris Moore, who I would recommend everyone to follow, um, who is um, very, very passionate about this whole area, identified this the six keys to trauma-informed classrooms and creating what he called a safe base. And they are pretty consistent, I think, with the nurturing principles that I, I value so much from Nurture UK, my, my favourite charity. So belonging, belonging to that community, belonging to a context, belonging to other people, predictability what needs to happen now for our children as they trust transition back is that things need to be predictable they need to be given warnings they need to understand the transition process and they need additional time to navigate it so that has implications for our organization and how we differentiate particularly for specific groups of children because this this notion that all our children will be traumatized of course we need to think of this on a continuum. This is very, very important because there are some children who are by nature naturally resilient. They will have navigated their way through this within a context of a nurturing home environment. So as, as Barry said, their recovery will probably be quicker, faster and, and easier to navigate overall. Whereas there are some children at the top end of the continuum who've had a terrible experience of lockdown, who have not accessed the curriculum, who've not been um, undertaking any learning. They haven't had the resources at home to technically, or from parents or carers around them who could support them in that process. So we're talking about a big continuum. 
just this week where I live in Kent and Medway, the, the figures were published for suicides of young people in our authority. And very, very sadly, within this period of lockdown, we have had seven suicides of children aged between nine to 17. And also what needs to be factored into this is that the majority of those had a diagnosis of autism spectrum disorder or ADHD. So that is absolutely tragic from my perspective, that these are the most vulnerable. So when we're talking about a recovery curriculum, this has to be differentiated. There are going to be children here navigating back in who have had a dreadful, dreadful experience of this period. Okay, and I, so I think that that's very clear and, and we've got to be very careful about that. But key to this, of course, is this notion of regulation. We know, uh, in, in essence, that dysregulated, unregulated adults cannot regulate dysregulated children and young people. So as Barry said, this is about imitation. We have to be the role models now for our children and young people going forward in how to regulate our nervous systems, which is another reason why I was so keen to develop this particular resource. So in essence, since we last met, we have actually now um, published this and, and I have a copy in my hand, I'm glad to say. And it really is for me something I'm very, very proud of. It's a contribution back to all the wonderful people out there who are really having to navigate this in their school context and at home with their children and young people. So in essence, my impetus here has, has been around the fact that I really do believe that there never has been a time for us when knowing how to manage our own well-being and how to support our children in doing this has been so vital. It's absolutely crucial at this point. We are the role models. We are the ones that they are going to imitate. We're the ones that they're going to learn from. And we're going to be the ones who provide that safe base for them now at this juncture. So in essence, I've designed it so that it can be used by parents, carers, teachers, and anyone who is working with young children or is concerned about their well-being. And it's just rampacked full of practical, evidence-based tools and strategies and resources designed to support and protect the mental health and well-being at this time of, I would say, continued uncertainty and, and fear, sadly, because we're not through it yet. We need to remain hopeful, but we also need to remain vigilant appropriately. My friend and neighbour, who is a high school teacher, works in our, our local high school here in Faversham in Kent, um, was very grateful when I popped a copy in and she said, you know, this is fabulous. I can put this in my handbag. I can read it on the train to work. Rather than just focusing on the anxiety-inducing newspaper, this is something I can pick up and maybe it's going to help me personally in, in actually gaining some sense of autonomy that I can focus on the things I can control, which is how I self-regulate myself and then support my children and young people in doing likewise. So the activities are divided into clear sections for younger children, teenagers and whole groups or classes. So very, very clear, very tightly structured. And they're grouped under what I would call three key trauma recovery approaches. The first one is self-regulate for well-being. The second is get moving mentally and physically for well-being. And the third one is to connect for well-being. And the argument I've made in the introduction to this little book is to su suggest basically that there is a need for all of us to now engage in these three trauma recovery approaches. 
staff teams now need to really be focusing on the first thing they need to be focusing on is their level of self-care and how they are navigating this as a staff team in the school context what support systems there are in place for individuals and the whole staff called children and young people to navigate back into the learning context so these three key elements these three trauma recovery approaches I feel have to underpin not only the curriculum for well-being and recovery but also the systems in the school. So that self-regulate for well-being is, is around our understanding of how to identify and modulate emotions to control impulses, delay gratification and make thoughtful and conscious choices and clearly we can only do that if we are self-regulated, if we can ground ourselves, if we can nurture our nervous systems in the right way and this enables us then to set realistic goals and achieve them as well, breaking them down into achievable steps for ourselves. Part two focuses on getting moving mentally and physically for well-being. So it's not just to focus on things I can do to stay well physically, but it's also about mental fitness. So there's a lot of cognitive behaviour um, therapy tools and strategies in this section, which basically focus on supporting children and young people to engage in more effective thinking, not necessarily positive, that's too simplistic, changing a negative to a positive, but it's actually teaching them how to challenge negative thinking, how to cognitively reframe it in an authentic way, so what that does, both in our heads and in our bodies, is helps us to produce those feel-good chemicals that we need more desperately than ever at this juncture. And then part three is around connect for well-being, focusing on that third key trauma recovery strategy. And this, for me, is probably the most important aspect and, and the thing that now I would be focusing on more than ever in the school community those connections really do matter, those compassionate, nurturing relationships that we have with each other and those that love us. And we know that it's so important for our, our mental and physical well-being. It's an essential protective factor against anxiety and depression. And we're seeing so much more of that at this juncture. This, is, this has got to be our focus. We thrive for those connections. We thrive for that attention. It's a natural thing. People often talk about children being attention um, seeking. Actually, all human beings are attention needing. It's part of being human and we need to actually move away from a pejorative um, nature of that, that, that kind of terminology, really. Building positive relationships is contagious. It's hugely, hugely contagious. And it really does offer us a level of support in what I think are very, very difficult times at this moment. This, this pandemic has been causing a huge amount of stress for many of us on that continuum, as I said earlier. So these relationships, that nurture, is absolutely now essential. One of the little activities um, in part two of this is around thinking about how we boost our positive emotions. So this is one from the activities for um, probably teenage um, children, young people here, although you could, this is, they're quite flexible, I think. It depends on the child's cognitive ability, I think. But they're active ones, calming ones, thinking ones. What do you do under those three headings in order to really boost your well-being and your self-esteem? Because we need to activity schedule 
all three of those, active calming and thinking activities in on a daily basis. So it's about engaging with a child or young person to ask them to think about what they do for each one. What could you do more of? Write that list now. Keep the ACT diary for a week so you can actually think about what went well, what you need to do more of. This focus on well-being and monitoring it has to be essential. Every, every child now needs to have a well-being transition plan individually bespoke as they move back in, if they're going to access learning, because they need to have their emotional needs addressed first. And we know, need to know what they are for each individual child now. It's a big ask, but it's an absolute essential. Lots of other activities, and this obviously reflects back to Barry's happiness box here, I think. Um, I, I'm very, very keen on grounding, mindfulness, relaxation, breathing act activities, and lovely activities and positive psychology that generate positive feelings, flow moments in, in our lives on a daily basis. So the book is full of these and they're very simply explained. They're very easy to make use of. And of course, they all have an evidence base. The psychology supports it, research supports it. So nothing in this book has um, just been plucked out of thin air. It's, it's stuff that's been tried and trusted by many, many psychologists and professional practitioners in schools and beyond. So my takeaway message really from this short view to embed those three trauma recovery approaches in your recovery plan for the school both at a systems level, so in your policies, in your daily experiences as to how you're actually moving forward and navigating this, but also on an individual basis for yourselves and through the curriculum. So self-regulating, getting moving mentally and physically and connecting those relationships for well-being. And remember, relationships, 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 not education, education, education. That has to come second now. They cannot engage cognitively if they are not self-regulated. That's a given. So remember, there are, there are lots of resources out there and there is so much that has been shared by amazing practitioners. So I encourage you to, to take the time to look at it if you, if you can manage to find some within this really, really busy period. But thank you very much for listening and thank you very much for asking me to present this today. Thank you. Thank you so much, Tina, for that wonderful presentation. Many thanks. So we're now going to move to the panel sessions. Uh, please remember to keep your questions coming in and you can upvote questions as well. I'd like to start by introducing our chair for today's panel. Sharon Gray, OBE, was a head teacher for 18 years. She led three schools during that time. That was one large mainstream and two special schools. And in all three schools, there was specialist provision for children and young people experiencing severe social, emotional, mental health difficulties. All three settings were judged outstanding by Ofsted. And indeed, Sharon has herself served as an Ofsted inspector. She's currently serving as a member of the Youth Justice Board and supports a number of schools and multi-academy trusts as an educational consultant with wholehearted learning. Sharon worked with us on episode number seven of the Learning Shared Recovery Curriculum podcast series uh, and gave us a, a fantastic presentation of some work that, that she's been doing with Embark Federation, which is a multi-academy trust in Derby led by Matthew Crawford and Sarah Armitage. It's a fantastic episode. And again, thank you for recording that with us, Sharon. Can I ask you to 
introduce the panel and lead us through the next session. Thank you very much and um, an absolute pleasure and honour to do that. What skill and expertise we have in this space. So, so great. And great to see that some of the questions are <coughs> that we will look at later on. Um, we've got a couple of questions that I'm going to pose after I've introduced the panellists and then we'll move on to responding to questions from our attendees today. So, um, a huge welcome to Vijita Patel, who um, um, created Podcast 3 on the Evidence for Learning site. I'd very much recommend that you have a look at that. Vijita is a principal of Swiss Cottage School, Deve School Development and Research Centre. <laughs> That's a special needs school for children aged 2 to 19 in London. The school is a designated national teaching school and Vijita is a national leader of education. Swiss Cottage School in DRC is one of eight schools in the country to have six consecutive outstanding Ofsted inspections. And certainly I was blown away on my various visits to that setting. Welcome, Vegeta. We also have the pleasure to welcome Sally Apps, who co-created Podcast 10. And Sally is the executive principal within Cabot Learning Federation. And her key areas of responsibility are in secondary strategy and alternative and specialist provision across the trust. Um, Sally also sits as part of the Southwest Regional Schools Commissioner Head Teacher Board and has a role as a trustee of an academy trust local to where she lives. Now, Cabot Learning Federation currently compromises of more than 20 schools and educational provisions serving over 11,000 pupils across the 3 to 19 age range in the southwest of England. We also have the pleasure of Martin McKenna joining us today, who co-wrote Podcast 5. Now, Martin is currently the deputy head teacher at Palmerston School, an outstanding secondary special school in Liverpool. And in September, he's moving to the Wirral to undertake his first headship at Foxfield School. Congratulations, Martin, and very lucky Foxfield School. And as a specialist leader in education, he's worked closely with staff from both within Palmerston and local mainstream schools to ensure that the curriculums are personalised to meet the needs of a range of pupils across ASC, PMLD, SLD and the MLD spectrum. We also have Sally, um, sorry, Ali Erskine, who co-wrote Podcast 4. Ali is the key stage one head of school at Whitfield Aspen School, inclusive primary school, with over 350 children on roll, and an additional 128 pupils with profound and multiple learning difficulties in their specialist resource provision. Now, during her career, Ali has taught in every key stage from nursery through to post-16. Last but by no means least, we have Polly McMeeking. Welcome, Polly, who um, co-created Podcast 11. Now, Polly is the Chair of Governors at Chattersley Corbett Endowed Primary School in Worcestershire. She has had a long career in mainstream and special education, retiring in 2011 as Director of Education for the Art Group of Independent Day Schools, serving children with complex emotional needs and their families for whom the state sector had not been able to make successful educational provision. Her previous work included Senko posts and headships of outstanding SEMH schools. So as you can see, we have a, a real broad range of skill and expertise here today to discuss some of the potential issues that we are all collaboratively facing. 
And so, panellists, I'm going to put to you sort of two broad questions, really, that I'd like for you in turn to respond to. And those questions um, are, the first one, what does the phrase reigniting learning mean to you? So that first question, what does the phrase reigniting learning mean to you? And I, I return to those incredible pictures, very emotive pictures that Barry had on his um, first, the PowerPoint of those children looking into to those flames of absolute energy and passion and that reignition. And the second that I'd like you to refer to is now that we're moving on from lockdown, what are the issues that you feel you're going to be really sort of um, experiencing during this time for all stakeholders? And what are the potential key strategies or the key strategy that you'll be endeavouring to implement in your schools, schools to help the ch children transition back into effective learning? So we're moving on to lockdown. What potential issues might you see and what are the, the key strategies? What will you be doing throughout your school or schools to support children back into their effective learning? And maybe if we can start with Vegeta, could you respond to those two, please? Good morning and a pleasure to be with everybody today. Uh, when I think about reigniting learning, uh, Certainly for us, I feel like it's taking a step back and thinking about the role of educators. So we're essentially preparing our children and young people for their role in society, uh, locally, regionally, nationally, and as global citizens. And that society is changing. It's changing very rapidly. And quite fundamentally, it's changing in a way that we want to make sure our children are going to shape. So I think that when we consider reigniting learning, I'd love to just take a step back. Um, and what we're approaching this with is ensuring that we're supporting teachers to be able to have that space to really think about the vision for their class. When they think about what's going to transition in September, how they're able to have the space because the teacher ingenuity is absolutely inspiring. They're actually personalizing learning on a daily basis prior to COVID. So being able to support and give that space for those reflections is going to have such an impact on the way that teachers are really able to consider how they're supporting their children in their classes to be able to be a part of that changing societal picture and to hopefully reduce any marginalization because that's the piece that we're uh, sort of fundamentally trying to navigate and uh, minimize as much as possible. Then the well-being and that sort of uh, lever of relationship wraps around it because the stronger the relationship, the more the children and young people will share. And actually the personalized learning has always been there. The most exciting pedagogy is shaped by teachers who really know the holistic picture for their children and young people. So I think for me, reigniting learning is actually space to empower teachers to be able to define what that is collaboratively. Thank you, Vegeta. Thank you so much for sharing that. Absolutely. What happens in that classroom and our incredible teachers that are out there that know those children, what happens in that classroom will make all the difference. And, and for me, the recovery curriculum construct enables that facilitation of that space and time to do the right thing for our and really trust in our teachers as a profession. You can share your thoughts on this, please. Thank you. Um, I think 
it, when I think about reigniting learning, I, I'm taken back to that concept of lighting fires under children in terms of learning, really exciting and igniting in them their passions. And I think to do that, you have to be in contact with your own. And so I think the massive silver lining of um, of this period for us, and there are, there, are, there are many, obviously none of us would have wished to have been in this position, but there are many things that we can take from it. Um, is that it's? I think it's stripped us back to uh, and it, to, to the things that are important to us, and so to watch the priorities change. To think, you know, to, to have sat down in uh, you know in late March and have said, "What's no longer important to us?" Well, actually, it's it's not the top of our list. Is no longer our Ofsted outcomes, our our um, outcomes as as a school or a trust or attending. You know, things that in terms of metrics that have have been. Um, necessary drivers actually the things that we really that really are important to us now are much more the things that were always on the list but they weren't as high um, and so I think uh, taking that opportunity to step back and to look at our own passions and bring those passions into the classroom to go, to go back back with our first love I think in terms of the reasons we chose to be teachers it's about passion for subject and it's about passion for people I think and it, I think it's about equipping um, teachers and leaders to be able to really do that um, and to recognise that's not necessarily actually in conflict with standards. Standards will rise when children have what they need and so we need to make sure that we give children what they need um, and I think language is a huge part of that. Um, I was reminded of a, a quote as we were um, kind of listening earlier uh, which is speak to your children as if they're the wisest, kindest, most beautiful and magical humans on earth for that is what they'll become when they believe it and I think there's something about that about being really conscious about our language really conscious about um about showing our passion for them as people and for our subjects and i think that some of the rest will follow lovely thank you thank you very much for that sally and it would be great to maybe pop that quote into the chat so that that folk can make a, a note um absolutely inspiring and absolutely about igniting that passion not just for our children but across our wider communities as well thank you for sharing martin would you mind coming in please and sharing yes. Good morning, everyone. Um, I just want to say both what Fajita and Sally says exactly accurate. My sort of key um, strategy for igniting, re- igniting learning, um, ultimately nurturing that key relationship um, really between staff and the pupils um, and making things fun. Um, the lockdown, there's been a lot of loss and one of that has been loss of fun and relationships. So moving forward, we really, really push fun and have a nice time and getting used to being in each other's social areas again. Um, you know, I also think an approach that we need to take as inquiry. Um, one of my big strategies going forward with as a new head is to really not be the teacher, but actually us to become the learner and the pupils to lead an awful lot of activities and that personalised learning approach from them. Um, and more, more importantly, also working in collaboration with all the professionals, but really taking the opinions and voices of parents into consideration going forward, uh, because it's been a very difficult time for both our learners and for our parents. Um, and I feel that that going forward is one of the vital approaches that we as a school need to take. Um, so we understand holistically everything around the pupil, not just what we see presented in school, but actually what they're like with their peers outside. Um, is it a front in the school? I think these are questions we need to continue to ask um, and obviously give a clear voice to the, to the learners going forward. Lovely. Thank you, Martin. And I get in a sense of that from you is about that, that secure base that both Tina and Barry and, of course, Mr. and Sally have referred to. And it's that sense of safety. I know many schools have said 
lots and lots of time about the physical safety, but it's that sense of the neuroception of safety. You know, that sort of when you walk into a room and you know there's been an argument, even though it's silent, yeah. and our, our, some of our most vulnerable and ourselves pick up on that, that sort of neuroception is how people are feeling. And we know the anxious child is not the learning child. The actual adult isn't the learning child. So that psychological safety will be the platform from which we can then reignite that learning. Absolutely. Thank you, Martin. I wonder whether, um, Ali, you would mind coming in, please, Ali Erskine. Oh, hello, everybody. Uh, yeah, absolutely echoing what everybody has said. And certainly, um, I think we need to take as a starting point, and certainly something we're considering at our school, the needs of every single individual child. And obviously, Tina mentioned that in her talk just now, about having that profile of every child. Um, and Sharon, I know you said and really struck a chord with us because particularly um, in schools where not all children will appear to be concerned or worried in any way. And it's really being sure that what we're seeing is, is actually what is happening. And the way to do that is by listening to the children, listening to their parents and being hypervigilant about the children themselves and seeing what they're showing us or perhaps even not showing us. And certainly for us, the sense of fun is hugely important um, and allowing an environment where children can make mistakes again and know that it's okay to make those mistakes um, and also to embrace challenge and um, where that, those challenges can be set up. It doesn't have to be hard math challenges. They can be the fun challenges that challenge is good and um, will get our brains working again. And certainly it's challenging times for us as adults in the school. So um, we're probably on the same journey together. I think we've found with the children coming back in already, and we've had, um, we probably nearly have half the school back in actually, um, with the variety of learners, that I think we've um, learned to accept that it's okay that children are learning in new ways. That's not a bad thing. It's, as somebody has just said, you know, we've recalibrated our thinking completely. And um, yes, and so some good silver linings in all of this, definitely. Yes, thank you, Ali, and I, I absolutely concur with that, that we're, the, the, the responsibility to, to, to feed through the, the golden threads, as it were, the positives into what we co-create as our, our journey forward, and that sort of development of a, a rich a, a curriculum that's as rich in hope and humanity as it is in knowledge. It, it really, really important. And the other point I think that you meant about the presumptions and ensuring that we really get into the lived experience of all of our, our stakeholders, which will enable all of our staff across the entire school communities to respond with a real sort of a compassion, empathy, and a kind candor, because we will have a, a, an awareness of what those experiences may well have been and how we can respond and not take some kind of Jackson Pollock approach to um, splattering all sorts of interventions and responses mm. in there, but actually reflecting what's needed. And I think that's absolutely key. Thank you. And um, Polly, would you mind coming in, please? Polly, I think you might be on mute. If you wouldn't mind unmuting, thank you. There, there we are. Um, firstly, I'm delighted to be here um, and to offer a, a governance perspective. Um, a long time ago, I was a science teacher and there's a, a simple qualitative test taught in all school science laboratories. You take a burning wooden splint and you blow out its flame and it begins to die away, merely faintly glowing at its charred surface 
and then you plunge it into a container rich in oxygen and that miraculous gas reignites it and the flames fly upwards and we all remember that and I you know have proud memories of watching so many children exclaim loudly at the magic of that vision this is the test for oxygen and what I have come to call the COVID test has blown a sharp icy blast through our school learning flames dampening learning lives and sometimes uh, for the most vulnerable to the point of virtual extinction to reignite learning right now I think Governors need to make sure that their schools provide that not oxygen rich, but emotionally rich curriculum environment in the safest of containers that unlocks the impact on the brain of pandemic stress and rekindles and sustains the learning flame. It is not wise for governors to demand an immediate and sterile academic catch up programme. This could easily extinguish the now fragile flames of learning and hope. As governors, we need to align our new understandings with our treasured school values and reframe how we achieve our school purpose. So as a governor, reigniting learning for me is unfreezing the learning parts of children's brains, freeing learners from fear, and fueling learning with well-resourced, recovery-focused curricula. Thank you very much, Polly. What a, an incredibly emotive, inspirational response, absolutely. And we really hear that we ignore the emotional needs of our children, our families, our staff members, our knowing that if we immediately environment, it will take greater time for our children to recover over time. So ensuring that secure base from the outset of which all can flourish and thrive will enable them to pick back up and move back into the ritual and routine of learning. And it's those relationships that will facilitate that. The trusting relationship with the staff with whom our children are, are learning. I know I take feedback back from those adults around me that are compassionate, empathic, have a kind candle that I feel sufficiently safe with. So I take feedback from Professor Barry Carpenter, who I know cares deeply and comes from a state of wanting to support. And I will listen to that. If I don't feel safe with somebody else when they're giving feedback to me, I might not take it on board. So creating that sense of safety from which we can move back into the learning process will be the very thing that enables our children to go on to achieve and to attain in the future. Before we move on, panellists, our, our third question. Um, is there anything that you wanted to respond to to each other as a panel from hearing each other uh, speak about your responses? If not, I shall move swiftly on because other questions are coming through. Um, what I'm going to ask again, one by one, before we go into a, a discussion, you have also kindly given of your, your time and your resources, your expertise to co-create your podcasts for the Evidence for Learning and Recovery curriculum. If there's one key message from your podcast episodes that you would like to share with our um, attendees today that may well support and persuade them to look at it, what might it be? 
And if you were doing your podcast again, knowing now the journey that you've gone through, what might you change? What is it about that's so pertinent to your podcast you feel would be beneficial for others to watch? What might you do differently having gone through the journey that we've gone through? And I think we'll start again with Vegeta, if that's okay, please. Vegeta, just before you start to talk, can I just ask if attendees could um, put themselves on mute, if you don't mind? We seem to have a lot of, um, sort of feedback, so that would be really, really helpful if we're not talking. But Vegeta, sorry, over to you. No, that's fine. And um, uh, the podcast that we did was um, uh, pretty early on. And a lot of the key points still resonate for us. Um, I would say that uh, it's essentially anchored on that relationship, the very mutual respect that sits between school and families, so that co-construction can take place and what that meant for us at that stage in the response to lockdown. Um, reflections on at that stage and what might change. Um, I think there's been a greater understanding of what teaching and learning is, what happens inside of schools uh, for families. Um, uh, I also think that what has sort of gone under the radar is a recognition of what strategic leadership is. A school development plan takes place over an academic year. We use all sorts of data analysis to inform that planning. And it's, it's a slow burn because we wanna embed really solid foundations for development. Every school has had a response that has been very rapid, high pace, and actually in the space of three months, what has been achieved is absolutely phenomenal. I think that there's great distance in being able to bring that understanding to families as well, not because you want to minimize expectation, but because they can also see that they've been a part of an evidence base and that we've been able to achieve this together. Uh, so that would be my crucial sort of learning from what the podcast was at that Lovely. time. Thank you and how very, we very much. I think that, um, due to that, really aligns with my thinking about that, that collaborative ownership of what the, the issues are as a result of everybody sort of working together to get that sort of lived um, experience, as it were, and then the collaborative ownership as to how we're going to respond to some of the, those issues over time and I think that 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 those those crucial words that you mentioned there it's over time it's not going to be a quick fix we know that so many of our our most vulnerable and potentially disadvantaged pupils or you know pardon the terminology have it's not been a level playing field for them for many 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 years and you know it's, it's so it's going to be what are we going to do for all of our children them where they're at, all of our stakeholders at that moment, but again, over time, as you mentioned. Thank you, Vegeta. Sally, reflections on your podcast? Um, yeah, so if I were to summarise what our, our podcast was about, um, in essence, it was about uh, how we have, to date, created a really values-led curriculum, which we evaluate through the eyes of the child and within, within which we use the the um, wealth of talent within our trust um, to be able to curate and to critique and to develop and that it's really crucially in line with the, with what are in our trust called the heart values our, our key values and I think the the, um, the key message in that podcast is about how you can take something that is 
um, rich and valuable like the curriculum that you were delivering prior to this period and use the, the recovery curriculum not just to get you back to where you were but to take you on to the next place and so that our curriculum is a better version of itself because of the because of the process we've been through and because of the uh, the impact of our recovery curriculum um, so that's probably the key message and in terms of reflecting on um, things I might add or change since the point where we we, we um, shared that I think possibly just a bit more clarity on um, I, you know most of my work is in mainstream settings and my areas of expertise is secondary and we're talking about large numbers of children and keeping them safe at scale um, and keeping them learning at scale and I think that it's important to recognize that structure is also a part of that boundaries are a part of that and um, clarity of expectation is a part of that and I don't think these two things have to be in conflict mm-hmm. I think um, the recovery curriculum is, is not uh, it doesn't have to work to a deficit model. It is not about, um, in the words of somebody, a, a, a critic I heard, you know, telling children they're traumatised. It's not about that. Being trauma aware and ha- having that influence your practice and your approach is not the same as telling somebody else what their experience is. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and if there's one thing that I, I would want to do with our staff from this point on, it's to make sure we really together we really understand that and that's something that I would perhaps have added in, you know, into our discussion in our, in our piece. Lovely. Thank you very, very much, Sally. Thank you for that. And Martin, around your podcast, please. Um, well, my podcast really looked at the inquiry and how we can support pupils coming back in, um, really understanding where the pupils are when they come back, um, not from guessing, but from evidence-based um, curriculum so that we could take the views of both parents, the views of those who have them, the views of the community, um, and also give them pupils time and space to also show us what and how they feel um, and taking a lot of responses and using a variety of different things such as some of the stuff that Tina's done, Books Beyond Words and resources that the toolkits that sit there for us to try and help staff um, because as we know um, a lot of our staff have some trauma-informed training uh, but not maybe to the extent that we need going into a crisis like this. This is something that's very new to all of us. We're all learning and developing as we go forward. Um, and I think we really need to upskill staff, uh, making them feel safe and secure um, and their well-being. As we say, we, we want staff to be, feel well-being before they can sort of use it. Um, and that also, I think, within my podcast was a key message, was parents and, and reading over the last few days, um, action from the kids have done a survey um, and one third of parents have said they feel unfit to help trauma um, inform sort of practice at home um, or to support their own learners. So I think there's a big gap um, there where we as schools need to step up both to help parents but also the pupils. Um, so going forward and, and my reflections really on my own podcast was really, would be really to focus more heavily on the trauma approach that we were going to be using with staff um, in the next couple of months to sort of upskill them to help and support both learners but also parents uh, because, as I said, this has been thrown on to all of us very, very quick. One day we were in school, the next day we weren't. As such, there was no, um, it was a very quick decision. So that support, I think, is key and a vital strategy going forward just to support all. Lovely. Thank you so much for that, Martin. And, and certainly, you know, some of the, the schools where they've accessed um, additional training around trauma-informed, trauma-sensitive approaches, but really looking at the biology of stress as well, biology of stress in terms of the physiological response when we're in a moment of anxiety ourselves as adults and how we potentially can be unconscious to that. 
You know, when I'm when I'm a little bit stressed, I might bark at someone and say, thank you very much for the coffee that my partner has very kindly made for me. And actually the, the sense of of the within that relationship of how that makes folk feel. Um, adults have been through quite a stressful time facilitating that understanding so that we can all come as much as possible from a place of self-awareness as opposed to a place of unconscious self-defense I think is is really key and then enabling us to almost be sufficiently courageous to be vulnerable and say right now Mr McKenna as as the English lead or the whatever whatever role I am, I'm, I'm not okay. And actually, I need just a moment to regulate myself before I go back into being alongside others, or I need some support. And I think that message is absolutely fundamental. So we yeah. have to together as a collaborative to steady each other through that sort of social engagement. Definitely. Thank you, Ali. Your your podcast. Could you tell us a little bit? Remind us and anything that you may well change. Yeah, I think the focus for our podcast was on the sort of compassionate leadership side and the importance of that within the whole school community and the wider community um, in which we all live and understanding the needs of the local community. Our local community, um, there are lots of parents who are key workers in care homes and uh, border force and so there was a you know, we had a huge amount of key worker children actually still coming to school regularly. Um, so our podcast really developed those ideas and the importance of, of listening to everybody, um, which I think I touched on before. Um, and through listening, we were really felt that we were able to develop some really fabulous ideas um, to kind of take the school onwards through this journey. Um, we had great ideas about reports looking very different from a teacher who was shielding and who had time to reflect and think, whereas some of us were still um, running at 100 miles an hour trying to change what the school even looked like. So, um, yes, it was, a, it was very much about the sort of compassionate leadership side. Um, certainly since that time, and it's funny when I actually did listen to the podcast again, um, and I think we all sounded slightly in shock um, we were one of the very early podcasters, our team, um, and I sort of reflecting on what has happened since that time, certainly for us as a school, um, developing the capacity within the school to help meet the emotional well-being needs of the children um, has become to the forefront of our minds and um, use certainly the collaboration with Barry to write the two Prime books, um, Lucy and Lenny in lockdown and Lucy and Lenny return to school has been absolutely fabulous. And it's given us a real focus and thinking space ourselves to um, view that through a child's eyes. Um, we've trialled those books this week in school and along um, with a group, you know, different groups of children. And the um, language that has come out from those children who are verbal and the responses that are coming out from those children, perhaps who are using augmentative communication, has um, been really informative. A little boy yesterday said, oh, it's that time when we were locked in. And you think, yes, that word lockdown became locked in. And he said, I just would even have gone clothes shopping and I hate clothes shopping rather than have that again. So, um, and another child who said, um, 
I loved football, but I don't know how to play it safely anymore. I don't know what to do. And so those conversations that are coming out through, triggered by the stories and pictures in those books has been really great. So if we were to add something into our podcast now, it would be um, that part of our continuing journey. So, yes. <laughs> And thank you, Ali, and thank you so much for all your work on uh, with Barry on those books without words. Um, I We know as adults sometimes to have the vocabulary range to articulate to others how we're feeling at a time of difficulty is potentially really challenging because we don't have those words necessarily. And so for, our, for to, to give the opportunity for our children to show and share how they're feeling so we can sense into that, I think is absolutely phenomenal. So we are all truly grateful for you and for your work um, on those, those books without words. Thank you very much. And, and Polly, in terms of your podcast, and if, if, you, thank you. if you unmute yourself, Polly, please, thank you. <laughs> there we go. Sorry. Um, yes, uh, my podcast was um, about the need for compassionate and knowledgeable governance. Um, I'm, you know, I'd become aware that some boards had been a bit absent without leave um, during this crisis. And I think that all governors need to do some deep thinking in schools is akin to controlling um, a dynamic equilibrium, achieving a sense of balance between continuing processes. These pulls will carry on shifting things for us for some time, it would appear. Um, but we still need to shift that balance towards the fulfilment of our vision for our schools. Um, the factors that I think impact on that equilibrium are the status of the virus, um, locally and nationally, the demands of, of government guidance um, and the emotional health of stakeholders. And all of these will fluctuate and move our balance point over the next few years. Um, governors will need to reset, I think, their strategic mindset by making continuous, appropriate and crucially very kind judgments and adjustments to their familiar processes. Um, using everything that we're learning right now, um, our challenge really as governors is to draw back the stage curtain dividing the strategic and operational, which forms the interface of our defined governor role with how our plans are played out in school reality. That's not so we can step through it onto the operational stage, but so we can enhance our awareness of how the COVID experience continues to shape the lives for those for whom we hold responsibility. Um, it's so we need to be asking important new questions like how has our school responded to the COVID test? We need to challenge in new ways that acknowledge everybody's experience but staff and all stakeholders, families um, and the agencies that we work with, we need to take account as well as hold to account. And we need to understand that when the operational threatens the strategic, we have to act quickly and flexibly and compassionately. If I was um, thinking about what I'd add, um, I certainly would I'd put a bit more in, I think, about our use, one of our key uh, 
motivators within school at the moment is the use of Bev Coville and Barry's happiness boxes. If you've not read their rationale, please read it. Um, our children are all making happiness boxes. I put out a call to our local community for shoe boxes and I had a houseful immediately, um, enough for every child and more. Um, and so it's, you know, the whole process is wonderful for the children, as Barry has said, it's a, a you know, a, a tool for self-regulation, um, but it's also been a tool that has changed our community. They've learned a little bit more about what children will need when they go back to our village school. Um, I'd certainly say that governors have a big role to play in evaluating the lockdown offer of their schools and in monitoring how any subsequent closures, and we may well face those, will be even better managed. Um, there's time now for governors to think deeply about schools and how they will preempt the difficulties which will arise when COVID infections stall school functions again. How will our schools protect our families from anxiety-driven negative behaviours towards those who become known to be infected? How will we ensure that children get the right messages, manage the strong feelings that will resurface every time there is a small outbreak? It will serve governors well, I think, to evaluate fully not just the school's response to the COVID test, but their own as individuals and as a corporate board to examine each area of board function critically and compassionately to ensure that our learning over this time is well embedded and supports growth and to regularly remind ourselves of how in the face of the most extreme test our school staff responded immediately with imagination and courage. So I suppose I would you know, maybe I'd copy the government's, you know, three-phase messaging system and say to governors, you know, you need to stay alert too. You need to stay alert to the different contexts that September will bring for all our... ...into account in your decision-making. I'd say... Control the tension in your school as much as you can. Make resources available for recovery work. Remember, there will, you know, there will arise conflicts and tensions that won't be healthy. Be ready to support your heads with real moral conviction and save our children's futures. That's what I'd say, I think. Thank, thank you, And listening to you, I can't not reflect on the leadership of Cindy Arden. The words that you have brought up and the, the approach taken, you talk about compassion, um, you talk about kindness, with that element of candle really shining that light on, but what clearly you're, you have facilitated is that emotional containment which enables your leaders and the staff teams across the schools almost to stop breathe deeply for a moment and therefore physiologically regulate themselves so that they're in a position to be curious, socially engaged with each other and so can access that cognitive response which is a far more well thought out plan 
that responds to the lived experiences of the communities that, that you serve. And so I think that's really, really helpful that you've shared so much of that. Because I think for me, what comes out of, of this piece of work facilitated by Barry and Alan and the wider community and the fact that today we've had up to almost 600 participants on, on this site, along with all the numbers that Alan mentioned previously about people that have accessed, is a real collaboration partnership approach where we are standing together with that courage to do the right thing for our children over a long-term period of time to enable our youngsters and our families, the wider communities that we serve, to achieve the best that they possibly can. And that isn't going to be a quick fix. And as you so you so beautifully articulated, Polly, we don't quite know what may well be coming up in front of us in the future as well. So standing together to support each other, to face whatever that might look like, so that we can really use that creativity, that skill and expertise that we have across our system will be absolutely phenomenal. So panelists, thank you for your sort of individual personal responses. I'm going to hand over to Alan um, Wood now. Alan has been um, just facilitating the questions and our questions from the attendees and through the chat. And I think there are a few more questions, Alan, from attendees that you have to pose for us. Is that right? Yeah, thank you, Sharon. Look, thank you to you for chairing that discussion and thanks to everyone on the panel um, for, for, for giving so generously yet again. Yeah, we've had 28, 29 questions in and we were sent some in beforehand. So we'll use the rest of the time to work through some of these. We're not going to get through them all. What we'll do is I'll take all of the questions and we'll actually post them in the, in the Facebook group because I think it'll also be really interesting to open some of these questions up to the broader community. There's such a wealth of, of, of insight and knowledge and experience. So let's start with the top question that's been voted up. Somebody's asked the question, and it's actually come up a couple of times. I was sent this question a couple of days ago as well, is, you know, clearly there's going to be a number of children, uh, you know, a, a sizable number that have been thriving at home both in terms of their mental health and their learning. So I wondered if members of the panel might like to reflect and comment on how the needs of those pupils can be supported as they, as we try to transition them back into the school environment, which is obviously a very different environment. If anybody wants to take that, I'll, I'll open it up because we've got limited time. If anybody wants to jump in, just jump straight in and we'll, um, we'll pass it around. Martin, feel free. Um, the, the big inquiry would be for me on that is why why has there been a difference um, and really get an understanding of how the kid learns at home and what excites them and a knowledge and understanding of that pupil through inquiry. Um, I feel using the very different tools from phone calls to Zoom to um, capture some of these videos and capture that learned at home and that, that engagement um, and then to transfer these skills. It's vital that we understand the pupil, um, strip back everything and really understand how that pupil learns. Um, and I think, as Barry mentioned previously, um, the engagement skills and creating an engagement profile for that pupil, not just in school, but also at home and getting an understanding from a multi-agency approach um, should really help structure that transition back into school. Um, and the question, maybe for some things, why are we doing this? If that doesn't meet the needs of the kid or doesn't have them engage, 
is, is it worth doing? Um, so that's that's my sort of approach to try and to look at people who, who have been being very successful at home. Thank you. Thank you. Is any anybody else like to add to that? Ali? Oh, you're muted. Ali, sorry, you're muted. Sorry. Sorry. Um, yeah, there are uh, many children who in our school who have thrived at home and who are very worried about coming back. Um, we certainly have children with um, autism, particularly on the um, who are terrified of leaving their safe homes because they have had rammed into them that they are not safe if they leave their house or if they touch anything. And um, I won't lie, I think that is going to be a huge challenge um, for us. And I think we will be looking at all the sort of research and um, to enable those children to come back, but obviously still taking into account all the things that have been spoken about today um, and looking at the prompts and supports to help those children at an individual level. But it certainly will be um, difficult, particularly, I think, arching over into the transition period of the year anyway, where children will be accessing new teachers and new classes and perhaps an addition of um, new friends and on your new classmates into their classes. Um, so, yes, I think we just have to be very mindful about it. We use Thrive in our school um, very positively, and I think um, that can be used very um, uh, effectively to support the children, whatever their experience is coming home into school, whether they're negative or positive. Thank you. Yes, good point. Um, Polly, would you like to add to that at all? or? You had your hand up. No, yeah, I did. I was just unmuting myself, trying to get it right this time. Um, <laughs> I, I, yes, I mean, uh, you know, I'll answer as a governor. Um, firstly, I think, uh, you know, we need to acknowledge as true that, uh, you know, school is not a co not comfortable for a significant group of children. Um, and, you know, as governors, we really mustn't leap to the conclusion that this is some sort of product of home issue. Um, it's, you know, we need to look hard at why a child would feel like that about our school um, and to ask the questions of leaders about what concrete bridging we can put into place for any child who is in that position. Um, you know, uh, simple uh, structures like, uh, you know, like the happiness box as a conduit between home and school, uh, you know, homeschool diaries of any kind that blend the two learning venues together, um, uh, you know, and, and governors need to keep in mind that these will have some time resource demands um, and, you know, and but they are essential things. And as governors, we need to, to monitor the happiness levels, if you like, the contentment indicators much more carefully now. Yeah, that's interesting. Thank you. Um, the, I guess taking that point a little bit further as well, the, um, am I muted? No. Sorry, <laughs> someone was waving at me. <laughs> um, just taking that point a bit further, I wonder if I could um, throw a question at Tina because somebody's asked a question that given our pupils are hearing so much about COVID, about the dangers, and, and Ali alluded to some of the, um, the extreme feelings of terror that children with autism and young people with autism might have, I wondered, Tina, if you had thoughts on how we can best support parents and carers and, and the, and the multi-agency team around that learner um, to help to reduce some of that extreme anxiety that children might have. Yeah, I mean, I've thought a great deal about this because 
primarily my main concern has been kids on the ASD continuum, those with special needs, and also a, quite a significant number in my local area who are teenagers who have been out of school, have not engaged in any learning at all. They have not had access to computers at home. I mean, this is the real world for many of our, our young people. And engaging them back is going to take a great like Polly who will actually support the school team in doing something that is a much more flexible approach because if you are if you have any kind of level of school phobia or you are so disengaged that is a long journey back it's longer than everyone else's so it has to be more flexible you can't just jump back in it's almost like treating this as if it's a, a big case of school phobia or emotionally based school avoidance on the part of many of them and you never just jump back in you have that anxiety level and ladder and you do it step by step by step so it's a gradual desensitization now for some kids that will take a couple of weeks for some of my year sixes who are around the corner here that's taken one week and after a week they're quite happy you know they're, they're totally happy bunnies but for many it doesn't so I think it's about really really graduated flexible response and some of the teenagers that I am very conscious of at the moment we're talking about a learning mentor going to the home we're talking about a combination here a bespoke program of home learning access to um, a personal tutor dare I say it and this is what it has cost implications it also has implications around how parents are managing that for their own own well-being and I think there's an element here about supporting the parents as well to understand how to support their children to manage the anxiety if that makes sense because actually they need the help just as much as we do as professionals as the teachers do so there's kind of three prongs here it's about supporting the parents and giving them the appropriate level of input but being really flexible around a graduated response back into school because there are fears there and you don't just get rid of a fear by jumping yourself back into the thing you're frightened of that phobia that fear actually takes time to process to work through to re-engage again and I think there's one other thing I'm really I, I really passionately want to say I don't want to hog the time here but just to say I really do think that actually moving away very, very clearly with the support of governors from this DFE um, new behaviour management guidance and narrative around catch-up is an absolute essential. We have to be brave in doing that and we have to actually support each other. That way we will be able to navigate this. We will be able to support our more vulnerable children effectively. But that bravery and the support from the governing bodies in our schools is going to be really key to this now. Thank you. Thank you. Sharon, yeah, you'd like to contribute? I, I think absolutely, Tina, and um, beautifully said. And, and with that, the kind of the social investment on return, that if we invest that time now, actually the outcomes will be so much better for those individuals and a member of the Youth Justice Board and supporting children who are in long-term lockdown. My, my real concern is we will, how we prepare our schools to anticipate and expect potential behaviours that aren't necessarily in line with our behaviour policies, but they are discharged behaviours of this. And therefore, whilst we may well expect them, we won't 
accept them, but how we are going to respond at that time for those individuals and the wider family where the children who need, as we know the quotes, the most love will be shouting out for that need in the most unlovable way. The, the, we would potentially exacerbate that need by withdrawing uh, relationship by putting them on the thinking step or in the seclusion or the inclusion or whatever it is booth it's at that stage where that relationship for that child really needs to go in and be alongside so how we look at our current behavior policies relationship policies engagement and mood management policies I think is really important and therefore sharing with our wider staff teams our our understanding of what do we mean by relationship? How, what is the stance of the adults and how are we going to be both with each other and with the children and the wider families as they come back? And I think that that sense of clarity could be really, really helpful. Thank you, Alan. Sally, yeah, you'd like to come in. I, just, I think there's also something to be said, particularly for those of you that are leading um, large mainstream settings where, where we know that we have resource light and we're not likely to have um, more resources at our fingertips it's useful to be able to think of um, and forgive my terminology but some ways to kind of clear the decks and what I mean by that is some children are going to need much more support from us and we may have only the same capacity to give it in terms of therapeutic support but if we're able to prioritize the mental health and well-being of our staff and help them now um, to wind down spend the summer right and get themselves ready for, for coming back to right language with some of the right tools for, for many children that will make the difference and for those children then we, we are um, to, to, to many extents meeting their needs and then that what that allows us then, if, we, if we really focus on things like the, the I really think now is the coming is the age of the form tutor um, in secondary which is often the kind of secondary role for many people but actually really really putting um, setting store by the times in the course of the day that a child will be able to, to engage with a small group in a way that is part of the usual run of things and helping um, um, teachers and, and form tutors to be able to hold the right kinds of conversations and allow children to explore and also the resource that is the children themselves helping one another if we can upskill our children who are incredible you know the, the peer support is incredible and if we're able to help children to talk to some of the difficulties they each have and support one another we will be able to meet some of the broad uh, need which allows us then to use the resource we have for those children that have the highest levels and I think that will that will help and it's got to be a whole school approach it's got to be everybody's language every day everybody's intent every day led by um, by people who are really passionate about it and, and that way then you can continue to keep the structure and the boundaries and the other things that your behaviour policies um, give you in terms of support but I think we need to recognise for, for many of us we were not going to have additional we're not going to have access to additional resource and therefore we're going to need to think really carefully about how we use that resource for ourselves uh, in the best way. Thank you, thank you. Um, one, one of the questions that's come up a, a few times is how to optimise the relationship with parents going forward. I think a lot of people have commented on um, one silver lining in a lot of cases from the pandemic and the, and the resulting lockdown has been a kind of an evolution of the relationship, particularly in the case of special educational needs between school and parents and that kind of cementing of the, the essential triangle. Um, a lot of people have been asking how best to kind of work with the parents to smooth that transition back and Vegeta, I wondered if that's something that you might be able to speak to because I know you've been doing some really interesting work on this way in Swiss Cottage. 
Absolutely. And it's a really good question. I think it's one to take a step back. And uh, sometimes we can fall straight into the normal processes as a school. We're about to start a new academic year. This is how the sort of ecosystem works. But there's such a great opportunity here to really look at this piece of the puzzle and think, what do we want to adapt? Um, my first point would be, I think teachers are leaders of their classrooms and uh, all the panelists and speakers have spoken about building trust. The more trust that's built, the more vulnerability or sort of open communication that will follow. So sometimes it can be quite top down where those relationships with families can be held uh, by core leadership, um, but actually bringing that to teacher level, because teachers are equally kind of fundamentally at the heart of the leadership team, uh, that relationship with the pupils and then that connection with families allows them to actually bring both pieces of the puzzle together to build in what they're going to approach pedagogically as well. So we get a win-win. We've got open communication with families. We're supporting the wider sort of well-being for this family as well. Uh, but we've got agility and it allows us to respond because we know that this is a long-term scenario so that we're not presuming that what we put into place in September is going to be the approach uh, a little bit later on. Um, I think that communication with families as well, it needs to be something that's authentic and it's something that is, is very genuinely engaged with. Is it partnership? Uh, is it something that we're saying, this is what we as a school are about? We value you as families. That means it's not always going to be easy conversations. And actually the difficult conversations and some of the provocations that could come, if we're really listening as schools, it's going to shape and change what we do as well. So that open and authentic relationship means that actually what we as schools are doing between teachers and potentially some of the systems around the school allow us to make this something that's naturally looping around the ecosystem of the school. I think what you get through that is the well-being piece, because if there's authenticity in the conversations and the trust is very much able to be that golden thread through the school ethos and the school culture, uh, the families are going to feel heard, but they're also going to feel a, a potential in being able to quite genuinely be a part of that school community. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. Um, the, uh, an interesting question, again, coming, I guess, coming back to the multi-agency approach, somebody's asked the question and um, feel free to volunteer who wants to take this, but how can local authorities, and I guess to a certain degree, multi-academy trusts, so they support their schools um, through this process. Do you have any suggestions or reflections? Um, if I can, yeah, if I speak for, for one example of a multi-academy trust, one of the things that we have done is to, I mean, it links a little bit to my, to my previous answer, it's to, um, we've focused on the well-being of our staff body and we've made sure that we've put resource, uh, the resource that we have and the expertise that we have into helping people to manage themselves and their own well-being. Apologies for the sounds of my children in the background. Um, <clears throat> uh, we have, uh, we have... <laughs> So there's something about being part of a, of a larger team and the, um, the sense of sharing and dividing responsibility and no school working out their plans alone. Um, and that has defined how we've worked on our recovery curriculum overall and it, and it will continue to define how we work on our on mental health strategy. Is there something more specific that you were looking for? No, look, I think, that, I think that's helpful. It was just a question that had come in. I, um, and look, I would recommend to, to anybody listening, episode 10, 
Barry and I came away from that episode with our heads buzzing for about two weeks after that. It's so full of fabulous ideas and, and just wonderful practice. Um, and highly recommended. Um, so look, one last question. And this, I thought we could finish on a, a positive note. There's been an immense amount of tragedy over the last four months in this country. Um, and uh, it's been a very intense four months for, for, for I think, everybody in, in the profession. I mean, everybody in the country. It's been a totally new experience. As, as Barry said, it's, it's something the likes of which we've never witnessed before. Certainly, I've never witnessed before. Um, somebody's asked a really nice question, which is, what do you see, panel, as any positives or opportunities that have been created by the pandemic? And which aspects should we protect um, as, as we kind of emerge from this and move back? Any volunteers for taking that question? Martin. Um, I know there's been a lot of loss. I also think that there's been a lot of success that's come out of um, this lockdown. Um, one being that multi, um, multi-team and multidisciplinary approach um, have really come to the forefront. I think there's been a lot more meetings happening and looking at the strategic leadership of how we can move forward for the support of the pupils. Um, I also think the health and well-being of pupils has also come to the forefront, um, not only pupils but also parents. I think for me, one of the big most important things is schools have actually started to live the values of what they write on their school website. So no, we no longer can just put these random words up to say, Oh, we'll do this, that. We actually have to start living that. And, and that has really come to the forefront. And, and I think that that approach and everyone being value-based going forward is, is a great way to actually start a school. And from here, we can re, rebuild the school um, to sort of show that these values are at the forefront um, and not hidden behind exams or academic, but these are actually our lived experience and lived experience for the pupils and the wider community. Thank you. So I'm writing that down. That's awesome. Schools <laughs> have started living their values. Um, fabulous. Would anybody else like to add to that? Yeah, Sally, please. I think it's an interesting thing that in the you know we've been separated from one another, and I would say from within um, within our trust, which is it's about two thousand staff and eleven thousand children, so a relatively large number of people, at, and really spread out and distanced, we've had a, a much greater sense of togetherness. Um, and there's something about the professional together. I mean, we, don't get me wrong, we really miss our children, the, those that we haven't been able to see except for when we've been delivering things to them. We really miss them and we can't wait to be back with them. But in terms of the sense of professional togetherness, of, of ne- absolutely needing one another and needing one another's resource, ideas, recognising none of us, no matter where we sit in the organisation, have the answers, but between us, we have the answers. That's been something that's been um, a real strength, I think, to, to take forward. And I think what comes with that has been are the ways we've communicated and the frequency of our communication and the substance of it. And I think particularly what you said about values, absolutely right, absolutely dead on. That's It has really characterised our communication. I think if we can hold on to one thing, it needs to be that, because it, as I, I mean, it's what I said at the start, we've been really stripped bare, we've been stripped back to the things that really matter. And I think taking that within with us into our next phase is, um, is actually very exciting. Definitely. Vegeta, yeah, please. I'll be very quick. Uh, um, it's also, it's not that education is a silo anymore. 
such generosity of spirit across community groups. So we've had conversations with arts organizations, cultural organizations, and they're all trying to help us problem solve how to bring them into our bubbled school because we don't want our children to be marginalized. It's absolutely inspiring. And this has been very challenging times, but equally the momentum we've had to sort of take it on, build up resilience and sort of see the problem solving and opportunity hasn't been one that schools have had to hold on to individually. It's been really, really powerful to see that uh, a number of organizations, there's a very strong community spirit, and it means that actually the desire to really think about the bigger picture uh, is there across certainly our locality. Thank you. Yes, absolutely. Ali, you wanted to chime in. Um, I think the recovery curriculum is the ultimate um, silver lining for us. I think it's um, facilitated thinking, conversations, connections. Um, I think it's been amazing. So um, in a nutshell, I think that has been a, a massive silver lining. <laughs> Thank you. Absolutely. Um, well, look, I think that's, uh, it's, it's coming up to uh, 12 o'clock. So um, let's look to, to bring things together. So that's a wonderful note to end on, actually, Ali. Thanks very much. So as I said at the beginning, what we'll do is we're obviously recording this conference this webinar it'll probably get turned into a podcast episode over the weekend like I said that's my kind of hobby at weekends evenings and <laughs> we hours of the morning so don't hold your breath <laughs> um, and, and um, but that'll go up it'll it'll be made available through the usual channel so through all of your podcast channels if you subscribe um, the, the, the video will be available through the recovery curriculum website and we'll also announce it through the community groups I will take the questions that weren't answered and the ones that were answered and I'll put them all into the Facebook group so please colleagues do feel free to continue the conversation throughout the summer we'll continue to update the resources that are on the recovery curriculum website and the web pages over over the summer too we'll be pulling out key resources from the Facebook group and and putting those in the podcast is then going to go to sleep for the summer and have a rest. My voice <laughs> needs a rest. And um, we'll be back in the autumn. Um, we'll be looking to catch up with people. Um, we've already had a number of people who have asked if, if they can feature in future episodes where we maybe look at the recovering reconnection process in action. So we'll be really pleased to do that. So do get in touch if you're interested in, in contributing to one of the podcast episodes. And I think, look, the, the, the final thing is to say thank you and, and a huge thank you. I'd like to thank our panel and speakers for both sharing wonderful insight, but also giving up your time. Two hours is a, a lot of time to give up in the last week of term. So thank you very, very much. And thank you again for your podcasts. I'd also like to thank all of the podcast contributors again. Everybody's alluded to the spirit of generosity and the sharing. And I think we've all learned so much from that. Quick thanks for my colleague, Barry Wood, who's in the background trying to make this thing work. We've all learned how to do Zoom webinars in the last week and, and trying to fit that around our day jobs, as indeed everyone is doing around the, uh, around the country at the moment as they grapple with technology. So thanks to Barry and thank you also to Alistair Crawford, who's been managing Twitter for us in the background. The, the main thanks I'd like to reserve is for Barry and Matthew Carpenter. I mean, Ali summed it up nicely, I think, 
the, the biggest silver lining has been this opportunity to step back and 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 think about you know what what we do in schools and also what's important. And I always remember one of the statements that Barry made in the very first episode of the podcast series, where he said that well-being and mental health need to have the same level of importance for our children and young people as numeracy and literacy. And for, for me, as a, as, a, as a father of two daughters and um, an uncle of nieces and nephews, if, if that's one thing that can come from this, then I'll have been really pleased to have done my bit. So thank you to Matthew for having the really the best to put themselves out there, write this think piece and uh, run around the country broadcasting it. <laughs> so thank you very much. Thank you to everybody that's been listening and uh, we wish you a very safe and restful summer. I think it's only fitting that the very last word should actually go to Professor Barry Carpenter. So Barry, over to you. Thank you, Alan. Uh, and again, Alan, I need to say to you, none of this could have ever happened if you hadn't have provided us as you have today with the technology. You've been just a stalwart. You've stuck by us through thick and thin uh, and have enabled us all to share something that's been truly influential and I hope will reshape what we do for children. Um, I want to thank all the panellists today. There were some golden nuggets there. I kept completely quiet because I was in awe of what you were all saying. And it was truly, truly inspirational. So thank you all for your time this morning. And the quality of the chat, the level of sharing, the websites that have been exchanged. I love the fact somebody's mentioned Sherborne Developmental Movement. I just love Sherborne Developmental Movement. The hips won't do it these days, but, you know, it was just a fantastic tool. Um, so thank you for that. And I love the fact we had people from New Zealand and from Russia on there. How wonderful is this? It's absolutely fantastic. Alan's asked me to say the final word, and the final word, colleague, has to be about you and the magnificent job that you do. I'm going to use some words I know some of you will have heard me say before, but I think they're worth repeating. Can we remind ourselves, please, that school is a place, education is a process, and educators are people. And teaching is a relationship-based profession. I appreciate all the worries that are going on around funding and around resourcing, but on day one, there will be you in front of those children. And when those children walk in, they won't worry about the fancy name label you're wearing. They will look into your eyes and they will search for the empathetic human being that lurks there. And when they find that human being, they will offer you their engagement. And I hope your eyes looking back to them are full of compassion. In the words of Gabriela Mistral, the Chilean poet, many things can wait. The child cannot. Now is the time that their bones are being formed and their mind is being developed. To them, we cannot say tomorrow. Their name is today. May you have many happy todays with those wonderful children. Thank you for listening. You can find more information about the recovery curriculum at www.recoverycurriculum.org. There's links to resources, reference materials, as well as uh, video slide decks. Barry Carpenter's webpage is 
www.barrycarpentereducation.com and the homepage for the podcast is www.learningshared.org. You can email us at learningshared at theteachcloud.net or tweet us at underscore learningshared. Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss an episode and please do get in touch with feedback if you'd like to either suggest a topic for a future episode or if you'd like to be involved in any way. Finally, you're welcome to join the conversation via one of our online communities of practice. We've got groups on Facebook and LinkedIn and details are on the Recovery Curriculum and Learning Shared web pages. You can search for Recovery Curriculum as a group inside Facebook. So for now, thanks again for listening. Stay safe and be well.